Hello and welcome once again to How to Pakistan. This is Fasi Zaka and uh, we had a great episode last time where we were speaking to uh, Sadhan Andume and uh, it was interesting. It was a great conversation, a difficult one done incredibly politely where essentially one was talking about, you know, we should war you. The other was saying maybe not, maybe, you know, the whole thing. But it went on in a fairly decent spectrum. And I mean, if we have to fight, Maybe that's the best way to talk about it. So uh, I've got with me Musharraf Zaidi, who's going to be introducing another illustrious guest as well. I'm delighted uh, to uh, welcome... Uh, I mean, first of all, let's... Just to set the context before we bring bring in our guest. You know, I think uh, the situation with, with India, um, Pakistan's situation with India is... Uh, it isn't great. Um, it's... I think... For some of us, I think we think it might have taken a turn for the worse. Uh, I think a lot of serious people think that long term it definitely has taken a turn for the worse, even if, you know, currently the heat might, might be subsiding. Um, but I also think, you know, it's important for Pakistanis to hear uh, different voices. Uh, I think Sadanan was a different voice because he sort of quite clearly wanted uh, uh, retaliation by force of, of some kind. I think that at least the tweet I saw from him early on, and I haven't followed it as closely as as I would have liked, but uh, there was a there was a sense of elation um, that this so-called strategic restraint um, that that's come to an end. Uh, I think cynical uh, cynics uh, of that viewpoint, um, and in my view, pragmatists might think that there's no there's never never really going to be an end to strategic restraint in 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 the subcontinent. I mean, one way of, of framing strategic restraint as a regional thing rather than just an Indian thing is that asymmetric warfare is an, is an instrument of strategic restraint. Uh, you know, I, obviously, it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a controversial thing to say. But I think that, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of problems between these two countries, and we've come perilously close to things really spinning out of control. And when uh, people like us have a chance to speak to a larger number of people, even five or six more people. But, you know, certainly uh, when, when there's others that are out there listening, we feel like it's a, both a moral and, and I think a national duty to, to be calm and to be dignified and, and to be serious and to, to treat people from this other country uh, with the same dignity that we... W- want for ourselves and to treat their viewpoint and try to understand their viewpoint and where they're coming from without necessarily agreeing it or, or agreeing with it or or becoming, you know, becoming taken in by it. So I think um, that's the spirit. Uh, that's the spirit in which we spoke to Sadanan. Uh, I think, you know, Sadanan is, is, I would frame his views as being sort of reasonably aggressive when it comes to <laughs> India versus, versus Pakistan. Um, I don't, I don't think our guest today yeah. Uh, is is uh, is quite so aggressive. I think he's incredibly smart. I mean, I, I feel that way about Sadanan too. But really, I, I think Shashank uh, Joshi is probably one of the smartest sort of uh, you know uh, commentators uh, with an Indian name that, mm-hmm. that's out there. Uh, I think his analysis is incredibly uh, thoughtful and deliberate. Um, I, I had the great pleasure of meeting him recently for the first time. I'd been following him. He's uh, at Rusi. Uh, he's a uh, he's an Ivy League trained uh, Ivy League trained sort of uh, researcher and scholar. Um, I, I take everything that he says reasonably seriously. I think others should too, whether they're Indian or Pakistani. Um, and uh, and sometimes I don't quite you know I don't really like what he has to say about Pakistan. Um, but uh, most times I love how he says it because it's really it really is dignified. And I think that you know if we can all learn to speak uh, the way that Shashank does. We'll we'll all live in a in a better world. I hope that does justice to you, Shashank. Uh, welcome to How to Pakistan. Thank you so much for that. That was a completely over generous introduction, but I'm incredibly grateful and thanks for having me on. So anyhow, Shashank, I thought I'd ask uh, maybe uh, a quick question. Is that you know one of the things that struck me maybe yesterday was that if we let it go at that, that the Indians believe that you know the Indians considered their actions to be a massive strike and it, you know, sort of makes mm. the being public happy 
and Pakistan considers it to be nothing more than a sort of normal course of business. Is there any possibility that it would stay at that? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think in some ways the response on both sides, the complete hyperbole that we've seen in some elements of the Indian press, the you know the complete amnesia on display, the idea that this is radically novel, transformative, new, um, you know, even Saddam's idea that this is the end of strategic restraint, an idea that I don't agree with. Um, that in combination with the prevailing uh, Pakistani uh, press view that this is a uh, effectively a trumped up, exaggerated, uh, almost illusory attack. It's an incredibly stabilizing idea, right? The idea that on one side uh, the call for uh, for one tooth the complete jaw in Ram Madhav's uh, you know cartoonish words that that's been satisfied, and on the other side that there simply isn't a grave provocation to respond to, at least not, not on the transformative scale that the Indians are claiming. And I think that's a stabilizing idea. The reason I don't think we should be sanguine about it, or that it's a, it particularly calms me, is that this is just round one. And we have to remember two things. One of them is that this is one plank in a bigger Indian strategy, which involves a campaign of very extensive and very intense diplomatic pressure on Pakistan that I think is going to continue and is going to escalate. And number two, that this is a precedent, and it may not be as radical as some Indians are saying, and I don't think it is, but it does shape the Indian response to the next attack, and there are going to be other attacks. We, we all know this. And unless something changes in the way India, and particularly this government, perceives Pakistan to be dealing with the groups responsible, this is going to shape the next attack in a way that I think is going to be quite destabilizing and, and potentially more escalatory. So all in all, I'm not very calm about this. And just to, so just a follow-up question is that now that sort of Modi's learned from, you know, his own whipping up of uh, sentiments and uh, sort of a nationalistic fervor, and now that he's seen how maybe it's straight-jacketed him to a degree as well, do you think that there's any indication that maybe he'll act with more verbal restraint at least, or is this just set to grow? I, I think that he's in a way leaving the verbal pyrotechnics to others. Um, you know, we've seen India's rhetoric at the UN General Assembly, and indeed I was reading, I was reading a piece by Ram Mother today in the Indian Express, where he himself uh, explicitly describes India's approach in the UN as aggressive, quote-unquote. So, you know, there's, there's no pretense that it's anything but. Um, I, I wonder about that, that straight-jacketing effect. Um, the other way to look at it is that Modi has reaped tremendous political rewards for this, right? Uh, he has managed to persuade Sonia Gandhi, Rahul Gandhi, to effectively extol his Pakistan policy. Um, this is, you know, as, as all of us who look at the relationship between Congress in opposition and the BJP understand, this is no easy feat. Um, he has succeeded in mobilizing and catalyzing not just his own, you know, far-right base and his own constituency, but a very, very large proportion of Indians from outside of that. Um, and, of course, he has big elections coming up in Uttar Pradesh. That is an important determinant of the way any government of India thinks at times like this. Um, so I don't think that's going to point in the direction of verbal restraint necessarily. But of course, as I say, I think the Indians feel that they're done for round one on the kinetic side, but all of that will change the minute we have any kind of attack on the scale of a URI or anything like that. I think, so this is exactly what kind of has worried me from the get-go is once the modus operandi of the Indian state begins to catch up to the modus operandi of the Indian national discourse, uh, there's essentially a perpetual downward spiral that leads eventually to discussions about nuclear, nuclear thresholds. And, and, you know, it's fine for many of us to kind of dismiss the, the behavior of people on, online, uh, on social media, uh, we, we have our trolls here in Pakistan, uh, some quite rabid, uh, well, trolls by, by definition tend to be. Um, and, and I think India has its share, but 
you know, this this last two or three weeks has really has really added a new layer to my understanding and my experience with with this uh, with this thing um, from a cross border perspective. Yes, I, I think it's inevitable that politics eventually, especially in a democratic dispensation like the one that India enjoys, that politics does eventually catch up to. Uh, not to the most extreme sort of versions out there, but to to the harsher elements that uh, that hold sway at times like this. How do how do we sort of? I mean, obviously, the easy answer, Shashank, is that you know Pakistan should uh, you know get rid of all all the bad guys and uh, it should start to behave differently. But within India, do you, do you get a sense that anybody at all is worried about? where things are headed when when people begin to talk the way that they have been over the last few days um, in the in the volume that not the volume in terms of how loud they're talking but volume in terms of the number of people that that have taken this I mean it's interesting what you said about how Modi's been able to mobilize uh, so many people and it's not just right-wing, saffronized no, exactly. uh, voters. exactly. That's the point. That's the I mean, important point. You know, Veer Sangvi is, is the furthest thing from a saffron... I mean, he's, he's a nationalist and, you know, no fan of Pakistan. But, you know, people like Veer Sangvi are hardcore sort of congresses, uh, and, and they dislike Modi and the, and the entire Hindutvavadi brigade. But they love what's happening, you know, the last, the last 24 hours, 48 hours. Yes, I mean, I, I'm, I think that the government itself, and particularly the officials who determine and deliberate over these things, obviously have a, a much better understanding of the potential for escalation involved in these things. Um, I think even the raid itself, if you believe India's narrative of these events, um, and I, I certainly accept that raids took place, and I think that the Indian press has probably got many of the details correct. Um, but we can get it, we can get into that. Um, there are elements that show the government was eager to signal restraint, even within the bounds of that operation. Um, and for example, I think uh, you know if you look at Sekhar uh, Dutta had a very detailed story about the. Uh, the, the thinking on this and the, the details that went into it, the decision to avoid as much as possible targeting uh, any kind of Pakistan military outposts in a way that would be more likely to cause escalation. I think similarly in the follow-up that we've seen, there have been lots of leaked details, but the uh, degree to which they were careful to minimize in the official statement uh, too much detail and the sense that they were trying to show the, the way they frame this is preemption. Now, of course, there is a legal and diplomatic purpose to that framing as well. But I think there's also an uh, intention to signal that this is a one-shot event designed for particular circumstances, and it's not designed to be the onset of something uh, significantly bigger in military terms. So I think the government itself understands that it wants... And, of course, one last thing, which is to say um, there is a lot of pressure on the government to release some kind of evidence or proof of this operation. And of course, that would be the, there is an enormous temptation to do that. So far, they haven't succumbed to that. And I think that's also interesting in an environment where it would be very, very easy for someone to leak uh, photographs, videos, anything like that in a way that would satisfy and indeed provide great fodder for the press that we've been talking about. All of these things make me uh, think they understand the escalation inherent in this. Um, whether the more vocal noises in the press will push them onto something greater, I'm not sure about that. I think it will be much more determined by the decisions taken by the two countries, the way the cross-border shelling goes, uh, the way that we see infiltration change, uh, even things that occur within the valley, the way uh, the degree to which the, the, the valley is, 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 uh, goes and the way in which India looks, at, uh, looks towards Pakistan it's uh, a scapegoat for some of that stuff. Um, and I think that will shape the dynamics much more than some of the editorials we see. The last thing I will say is I do read the Indian press relatively closely, relatively extensively, and I certainly see a very large number of actors who are also much more sober, much more cautious, uh, and much more pragmatic, and who really understand that an operation like this that is very limited, very uh, in some ways very cautious, 
uh, in no way uh, suggests that India is able to cross more uh, deep-lying red lines with impunity and that the risks of doing so would be catastrophic. And I see a recognition of that amongst many more Indian journalists and actors as well. I, uh, there's a lot in what you've said. I mean, you know, the first, obviously, the easy debate is is the one that kind of the, the two countries have been having since, since the announcement of this by the Indian uh, DGMO, which was, which is the debate about, you know, whether... In fact, there was a, a crossing of the LOC. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I think that um, some of the reporting, you know, as you know, I follow this probably not as, in fact, most definitely not as closely as you, but, you know, uh, to the extent possible, I do. And, and some of these folks are, are, are acquaintances and maybe even friends. So, you know, without taking any names, but, you know, I saw one report in which... <laughs> The paragraph began. <laughs> the paragraph began with the you know, the Pakistani posts were taken by surprise. <laughs> the thing, the, and you know exactly which one I'm talking about. We're, we're not going to get into the, we're not going to get into names, but just if you think about this situation, uh, we've had uh, heightened tension in Kashmir uh, for a substantial period of time. We've had the Uri attack. We've had the UN back and forth. We've had, um, I mean, we've had everything that we've had for the last two, three, three weeks almost. The idea that Pakistani posts on the LOC would be taken by surprise by literally anything short of like the biggest, like the biggest nuke that India has. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't, you know, it's, it's and so. Well, Musharraf, you're, you're forgetting the possibility that Ajit Doval himself was uh, personally responsible for all uh, the destruction of all five launch pads, and of course he he does possess special stealth capabilities because he's very he's very because of, you know he's, he's he's basically designed ergonomically for stealth. So I mean that, that is a possibility as well. Yeah, he's a stealthy guy. Um, right, of course he's very short, so I mean that makes it easier too, right? I guess, but you know we're not going to get into Indians and Pakistanis short, fast. You know who bowls better or whatever. You know this, those. I think that era is over. I think you know we have a lot of red meat eating Indians now who are ready who are ready for action. Thank God for that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that for you know this is what I'm saying. I think that this let's call it carnivorous. Uh, aggressive India, um, which, again, Pakistan, I mean, I can almost hear the kind of the Hindu nationalist take on this, which is, uh, like carnivorous, like, mm. you're only saying that because, you know, Nehru and, 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 and Gandhi and everyone, they, they made us into Yanuks, and, you know, Vajpayee announced that we're not Yanuks anymore, and now we're showing you that we're not, and, you know, and so, from, from within the Indian sort of, you know, the Indian polity, sort of, I understand what's going, or at least I think I understand, I try to understand, and, and one can uh, one can try to process it in a certain way without getting very upset. But when I juxtapose, or when I insert that understanding into a regional context that is just two countries, just Pakistan and India, then, yes. then suddenly the, the bigger problem uh, for folks like Fussy in particular, uh, of a dovish disposition, and for folks like me as well, I call myself like a center pragmatist, uh, not a hawk and not a dove, uh, maybe even hawkish on some things. But certainly for, for middle-of-the-road Pakistanis who want to just go about their business, just like middle-of-the-road Indians just want to have a decent life, it becomes extremely difficult to argue uh, for things like normalization, for things like sanity, sure. for things like decency, if, if what we are getting from India is Arnab++. Plus plus. And yes. I, I, I think the one... There's one I think we have to look closely at this idea that, you know, you, you talked about some of the details about catching these posts by stealth. Um, this is not a new phenomenon, right? We have seen uh, certainly elements of the Indian press willing to take details at face value that are implausible. And there are, there are chest-thumping, nationalistic descriptions, aspects of color in these things that are completely wild and implausible. Um, and apart from that, there is also the, 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 the fog of war itself. And I, this is not just an Indian or a Pakistani phenomenon. We, you know, even after the Bin Laden raid in the American press, we saw 
the degree to which initial reports were sometimes wildly divergent from those that followed later on when the dust had settled and when you know things were becoming clearer. So there's an element of genuine good faith confusion that goes on. There's an element of deliberate um, uh, leaking designed to make the Indian armed forces and the government look good. You know, I, one of my favorites from, from two nights ago was the idea that Modi stayed up all night and he didn't touch a drop of water, right? So that, was that was the... Yeah, yeah, I, I guess he was meditating as well. But I mean, yeah. the, the point is, I see these as irrelevant detail. Now, what you're saying is that some of this is not irrelevant because of the it's it's it, it's sort of the chauvinist nature of it does have an impact on doves across the border. I understand that, but at the end of the day, there are still questions of fact, which is: Did special forces go across the border? You know, maybe the, the, from what I understand, the helicopters did not cross the border. They were merely used to drop special forces uh, close to the to the yellow uh, on the Indian side of the Yellow Sea. Um, did they uh, uh, destroy some kind of outposts on the other side? And did they do so across a pretty wide range of the Yellow Sea in excess of the kind of more isolated tactical raids of which we saw many examples in the late 1990s and the early 2000s before the ceasefire? On those basic facts, I think that that we can set the chest thumping aside and say that is probably accurate. And on the rest of it, we can say that, uh, yes, this is a kind of embellishment that, frankly, does none of these journalists any good. But, you know, even on the Uri stuff, um, I remember there was that we, we now, you know, a couple of weeks on, there was a detail about whether there were Pakistani markings on weapons uh, and whether the DGMO of India had said this. And, you know, I think they messed up and they said there were markings on the weapons when, in fact, the markings were only on the other equipment. Now, this is a problem if we're getting sloppy on absolutely crucial details that have to do with sensitive points about attribution of attacks and so on. To me, this is problematic, but it doesn't necessarily change the fundamentals, which are still that whilst the press exaggerate and embellish, I think they've got the underlying detail correct. And I still continue to believe that. I... Um wanted to ask one thing which I realized that we uh, neglected to cover when we were talking to Sadanand, which is that, you know, now going forward from here, what's India looking to do regarding the troubles in Kashmir itself? I mean, surely the thought can't be that all of it's exogenous and none of it's endogenously driven. So what is it that within, you know, the current change, the framework, any thinking on how Kashmir itself is run or approached? Well, in, 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 I don't, I, I've only seen the limited amounts in the press. And obviously, it's, it's not the most rounded discussion you can get of, of, of politics in the valley. Um, from what I understood, I think the government's expectation was that it would be able to write this out, that it genuinely believed a majority of this was exogenous, which is a, which is a belief I do not share, and I think is is profoundly mistaken and uh, potentially ruinous in some ways. And that a hardline security-driven approach would be sufficient to quell. Um, that ultimately the government could rely on the fact that the international community no longer sees this as a flashpoint worthy of urgent attention, which is probably an accurate belief in, in India, and that ultimately, if necessary, the army would be called back in, uh, and that it would be able to handle the problem. I think that we have seen an incredibly cat-handed response at the political level, and frankly, those Indians I know who know Kashmir best, whether that's because they've served in Kashmir with the armed forces, or whether that's because they have covered it as reporters, they share that view. They see the government as fumbling, as failing to articulate any kind of uh, 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 persuasive political vision and reliant on old tropes that are no longer valid. Um, but I would say that even those dovish Indians who recognize the need for fundamental change in Indian policy towards the valley, um, they still see a fundamental distinction in their heads. And I think it's probably a broadly valid one, in my view, between the issue of the valley and the uh, protests against Indian rule and the issue of cross-border terrorism and handling Pakistan and the response to that. Although, of course, the issues are connected at a operational level insofar as I think many Indians do see infiltration as potentially compounding that situation, even if it is largely indigenous and autonomous. 
And just uh, another question, which, you know, sometimes when we reflect on our own media here, and this is something which is a sort of change of perception for me, at least. I mean, over the past couple of years, you can see, at least within Pakistan, some of the, you know, sort of uh, pernicious elements that uh, create this sort of worldview, which is problematic. But watching Indian TV over the past year, especially... I mean, how much of India is worried about that in itself as well? Because uh, when you look at some of the problems that, you know, Musharraf was talking about, the people-to-people element, it's driving, you know, a wedge where there was also a kind of strategic restraint at least a decade ago, where it would pop up, you know, in animosity, whether it came up in certain flashpoints or, you know, just sport. But beyond that, you know, there was a level of respect. I'm just wondering, domestically, India on a just purely policy level, when it looks at this particular uh, facet, which, I mean, I, at least at least from the television viewing I've done, is kind of pervasive. I mean, is there any debate on that? Do you mean on Kashmir specifically, or do you mean more broadly on India-Pakistan? India-Pakistan, yeah, India-Pakistan. Um, you know, I think the volume has increased, and obviously we're seeing particular shows on Indian television that have a... Uh, an especially wild-eyed flavor to them. But I'm not so sure this is that different to a previous era. I mean, in terms of people-to-people relations, what has fundamentally changed from periods of substantially elevated tension, whether that is 2001 to 2002, and, and the, you know, the incredible levels of tension in excess of what we have now that were reached at that point uh, 14 years ago, uh, or indeed after 2008, are we, do you really think we're seeing a more fundamental breach at, at this point? Well, I mean, I think maybe part of it's technological where the access for... Yeah, I think we can hear each other better. We can hear each other better. <laughs> so it may just be that. But also just from, you know, sort of a cursory understanding of the media, I do think the media has moved into a different direction or at least a different degree uh, of irresponsibility that one... Had seen before. I think you're being too. Uh, sorry, I, I, I think Fussy, you're being as usual, like too nice. There was a time when everybody in the media was was a dove. Part of the reason was uh, media folks tend to be a little bit more open minded. They've seen more of the world. In, in South Asia, media folks have always been doves. I mean, that's especially those that cover each other's countries because there's this personal interaction every and what we're seeing now is that there's a there's a hawkishness to the, even this community yeah uh, and I mean well, I think we have to I think, I think we have to make a distinction here between the broadcast media which is uh, uh, has a much greater proportion of hawks and very vocal hawks and I think that's partly to do with the the stylistic demands of the medium um, and the print media where I think there's a much bigger range of opinion and there's a much higher proportion of intelligent, what I, would, I guess what we would call pragmatic hawkish commentary, right? Or, you know, uh, less than frothing at the mouth commentary. Yeah, but the, that's also the, because, Shashank, isn't that also part of the, I mean, part of the reason for that is that, uh, you know, people like yourself and myself, we may, and uh, I'm not suggesting this has ever happened, but we may get carried away on television but, you know, when we're writing, we get to edit and re-edit our stuff like, you know, 20 times. And so I think that, you know, there's a, there's a generic uh, restraint in the print uh, medium that, that you don't find in, in, in the broadcast medium, right? Yes. No, I, 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 think, I think that's, that's true. There's a, there's a more sort of cerebral quality to it. Exactly. So, I mean, I've, people were talking about, you know, some folks. In fact, I was sitting with some friends here and they said, you know, this whole Sark thing where they where they want to isolate Pakistan you know this is this is new uh, they're not even going to let us you know they're not even going to let the region sort of interact and cooperate and I was like well no it's not new you know Sark minus one has been yeah you know and and those are a lot of the people that have that have actively advocated Sark minus one are people that are incredibly sort of smart and uh they love Pakistan when they visit. You know, they have Pakistani friends. Their kids, some of their kids are married to Pakistan. Like, you know, there's... But that's, to me, like, if... As somebody who sees trade as one big instrument in a long-term project of economic uh, and 
well, I, I shouldn't go that far, but certainly economic integration and, and connectivity, uh, which, which obviously causes interdependence and interaction, which causes, you know, which causes uh, mutual sort of uh, stakes mm. in each other's, you know, cities and towns and markets, which then causes there to be, and of course, there, are, there people can contest this, uh, this way of thinking, but as somebody who, who, who tries to see the world in, in those terms, the Sark minus one thing is like this, it's like this offensive thing. Like, I, I, you know, and it's not because the minus one happens to be Pakistan. It's because in essence, what Sark minus one is really saying is to build a wall on, you know, on the, on the Radcliffe line uh, or, or whatever you want to call it, the international boundary, uh, working boundary, LOC, whatever we call it. But basically, uh, Sark minus one is, is something that is, advocated by people who are otherwise seen to be very sophisticated, very uh, nice, peace-loving, not hawkish folks, yet I think it's, it's devastatingly hawkish. Like, I, I think that it's, and it's not new, it, it's pre-Modi, it's, it's pre a lot of things. I, I think Sark minus one has existed from about 10 minutes after Sark, uh, Sark was, you know, first, uh, first conceived. Yes, but I think it's in the context of the fact that they're simply is a very limited repertoire of non-military, non-security levers or pressure points on which India is able to push. Uh, that's why we're seeing things that are that I think the government recognizes are fairly outlandish, right? The Indus Waters Treaty. The government's not going to abrogate the Indus Waters Treaty, but in a, in a, when you have a, when they see themselves as having a fairly limited set of options. You know, they, they pull out what tools they have at their disposal. That's why we got the meeting last week on the Indus Waters Treaty, and that's why we got the relatively, you know, arbitrary, and I think the government recognizes a very modest steps on things like pulling representatives out of the Permanent Indus Commission. But just to step back for one second, I, I still think, you know, we're giving too much attention to the, the media. Um, I think, and, and indeed to the to the political context. I think politics was part of, was, is part of the important part of the context in which Modi would have made this call. However, I think that other more kind of underlying factors are more significant here. Um, I, I think Patanko was really important here. I think that, you know, we, we've talked about this, but in, in, in the days after Patanko, we saw what was, in my view, the most kind of mutually... Um, uh, Calm, yeah. yeah, you know, constructive responses from both sides we have seen in a long, long time. In the restraint, verbal restraint, the refusal to uh, attribute anything uh, quickly, the uh, the fact that the national security advisors spoke to each other, um, and you know, indeed, of course, most dramatically of all, in the joint investigation team itself. I think that was a tragedy about the, the course that took. I, th I think that's devastating because I don't know how sincere Modi was in all of that, but I do think that that was an important opportunity that was foregone. And the way that that collapsed with no serious progress on the issue that drove that attack, I think that left the government extremely disillusioned on that front. Now, I'm not saying it was particularly starry-eyed before that point or idealistic, but I think that really caused severe disillusionment. And the, indeed, the National Security Advisors uh, I don't think they've spoken to each other since since June or so, um, uh, according to people uh, I've, I've, I've heard from. Um, and I think that that shaped the environment in which uh, India would have made its deliberations after Uri, without Patanko. And indeed, if in, in some ways, if we hadn't had such a potentially constructive beginning to the aftermath of Patanko, I think it would have been even better in some ways, because you wouldn't have had the inevitable fall. Um, sorry, not inevitable. You wouldn't have had the fall. I shouldn't say inevitable. And I really think that that has shaped the environment. I also think that the diplomacy has shaped the environment. Indeed, that India's perception that the overall diplomatic balance is moving in its favor, and that gives it the space to impose a cost on Pakistan in this way. Now, do I think this cost is going to be sufficient to change Pakistan's calculus? No, of course I don't. Um, but... I, I think that that was a really crucial determinant of their behavior. I don't think that what the press was saying was was pivotal to that, actually. No, I, I've said it. Uh, I think we talked about it in our conversation with Sadanand, and I think, although my, my memory is hazy, no, I definitely wrote about it as well. Right after Uri, uh, I, uh, I did refer to Patankot. I think, I agree with you. I think that... Um, 
it was unprecedented, the, the quantum of cooperation. And if there are misgivings on the Indian side, I think there's probably uh, some, uh, there's some justification for those. Um, I also think that, I also think that there's a lot of people on the Pakistani side that, you know, you, you asked the question yourself, right, about Modi's sincerity. And I think there is an inbuilt uh, skepticism. Uh, and it's not that's, limited to Pakistan. That's fine. But, but, but what happened, what, that, that is legitimate, I think. But what happened after Patan Kurt to question Indian motives in that process? I, I, you know, I mean, that seemed to me a really big opportunity. What did India do wrong after Patan Kurt? You know, I, I can't. I can't say. I mean, I think that the larger question is after. I mean, I think it's disconnected from Patan Kurt. What did India did wrong? I think the treatment. Uh, you know, the the situation in in Kashmir. Oh, of uh, course, absolutely. absolutely. But I'm talking about what it did wrong in terms of engaging over this attack. I'm I'm, I'm not disputing that what happened in the in the summer that followed that. You know, particularly from from June onwards, that was that really complicated relations. But why, why did that need to sabotage the... I mean, by the, by the way, by the time the, the valley really kicked off in the summer... The botanical investigation was already, already dead. Right? Yeah, yeah, that, that was yeah. already dead. Yeah, and, and I, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. And I think that, you know, I think that there may be folks that claim that they do. Uh, I'm not sure on either side of the fence we, we have a clear, uh, crystal clear understanding. Even the reporting, I mean, even people like Praveen are not... You know, they haven't said a lot about how Patankot went from being the most unprecedented series. No, they haven't. It's right? been really bad. It's been really badly covered, and that's a shame because I think it has. It's both a kind of. It's both a cautionary tale for us. Uh, you know, when we look at these things, and it's also it's hopeful in the sense that I see an alternative pathway that could have been taken at Patankot. And let's be honest here, right? I mean, well, maybe, maybe, maybe you disagree, but we we understand that there, that we understand one of the reasons. For that process being driven into the ground was also the civil military aspect, wasn't it? Right? It was. It was not that. Uh, it was not that the, the Nawaz Sharif was 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 saw this saw Modi as irretrievably cynical on Patanko. It was that there were other forces, of course, that that uh, I think did not let that process take the course it should have taken. Well, and and I think that you know, absolutely, I, I think Pakistan has had continues to have uh, a civil military disequilibrium that is uh, variable with seasons, with the week, with the day, you know, it, we, d we don't know what the variation uh, comes from and how long it lasts and how, how deep or wide, uh, you know, Where our variance. Exactly. From. But, but I think that for me, and, and this is not kind of a, you know, Pakistani versus Indian point. This is just, if, if I step back, uh, well, uh, let's let's face it. There's no way I can ever really step back from being Pakistani. But you know that, notwithstanding, when you look at India and you look at what it has going on, and you look at you know the size and and where it's headed economically in terms of stature in in almost every way, certainly in terms of internal coherence and its institutional strengths and and what have you. For India to complain about not being able to figure out how the dynamic in Pakistan is positioned at any given point in time is a signal of Indian weakness, not of, like, in a sense, it's something I said after, you know, the New York Times had this editorial uh, about, you know, post-Uri, and, and I tweeted out, and a lot of Pakistanis were really upset, but I tweeted out, I said, it doesn't say anything new about Pakistan, you know, the New York Times hates Pakistan, big deal, but, you know, it does chide India for its treatment of, uh, of Kashmiris, and and that is new in terms of a generation, because there's a whole generation of analysts uh, and 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 you know strategists who actually weren't adults in the '90s and 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 are now. And so that's the first time the New York Times has done this to them, if you will, uh, in terms of an input, an analytical input. And so uh, just you know, in keeping with that, I mean, the thing the thing about Pakistan's civil military disequilibrium is that it's a known known. It, it's mm. not, it's not, Indian strategists should not be, if, if an Indian strategist is complaining that, you know, we don't know whether Nawaz Sharif is in charge or Raif Sharif is in charge, I think they're <laughs> saying they don't want to do business with Pakistan. Because no, if you no, want to, sure. I, I strongly disagree, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I strongly disagree with that because I think actually that's, that is, that's uncharacteristically cynical for you, I think. Um, you know, after Patanko, the whole point was that it was a new equation 
even within the bounds of that known known. Okay, of course we know the underlying balance of power and how it's changed in, in the past two years. The point was, Indians genuinely thought that the presence of Pakistan's national security advisor being part of that process, uh, that the way it had been allowed to proceed, the fact that the investigation team had proceeded, that these represented changes, incremental but significant changes, within the bounds of that overall civil, lopsided civil military arrangement. I and think that they did. Within that, there was a possibility of change. And I think if you say, well, they should have known, what you're saying is they should have known nothing would come of it. And I think that's, that, is, that is a counsel of despair. No, well, I, you know, that I think you're right. It is, uh, it is uncharacterically, uncharacteristically cynical of me because it isn't actually an accurate uh, interpretation or understanding of what I'm saying. I mean, I think that I'm not suggesting that Patan Code was always going to fail. I'm suggesting that the pace and the dynamic uh, through which we're going to have to travel in this region to get to a South Asian century is going to include long periods of uh, uh, long periods of Sunny Gavaskar and and not so much Virat Kohli. You know, a long periods <laughs> of just watching the ball and and figuring out that now's the time to just keep saying, "Well left," uh, and "Well left," and "Well left," and then and then when you find one that you know you know you can you can belt, uh, then you go then you go all Virat Kohli on it. I'm really big on the cricket metaphors for some reason. I think when it's India-Pakistan, <laughs> it makes sense to do that. But but really, I, I, Indian strategists must, and, and I think eventually will, because I don't think there's a way around it. I don't think that the civ mill imbalance or disequilibrium in Pakistan is one that is going to be uh, that is going to be resolved uh, within sort of my generation. Uh, and I, and I think that. Fussy, I'll just let you come yeah. in a bit. I think that it's going to evolve rather than be resolved. And that keeping pace with that evolution is going to be how countries are going to do business with Pakistan. And the country that has the biggest stake in the Civ Mill uh, equation, uh, other than Pakistan itself, probably, uh, not entirely, but probably it's either India or Afghanistan. And so... I think that a more serious and more measured uh, and dispassionate view of civil relations in this country is is needed, and I don't see it. You know, when I see, I see a lot of, I see a lot of what isn't um, going to work, a lot of binaries which which aren't going to work. So I just want to add a question, and it's related to what you've been discussing, and it's to the both of you. Is my own presumption would have been one of the reasons why I was surprised at the way that there was a bit of chest beating around the action that happened the other day, is that the presumption that there is a degree of, you know, uh, uncertainty over what the nature of the civil middle relationship is, that in itself should feed into the idea of strategic restraint. If there is a relative lack of surety over where it stands and then surely there's also a lack of surety of what the outcomes would be post any action which should feed into a degree of restraint otherwise your action is like a lit match on top of a, a barrel of oil right but th th that's my point so i'm just wondering about that that i mean if we're mm. looking at this exactly i mean when let's say india was doing its calculus i mean in my own i mean my belief is that it was uh really irresponsible because the escalatory presumption that maybe, you know, this wasn't enough. I mean, I would have thought maybe a couple of days before that it would have been enough. So I'm just wondering what you think of that. Well, first of all, um, why, I, let's, on the premise there, that the, don't you think this has, for now, effectively been contained? I mean, I know at the beginning we talked about the trends going forwards and the way other events could cause escalation. But from the Indian point of view, um, they have kept this within bounds so far. No, I, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think that it, I mean, it is, we are at a surprising point today where it seems to have, an action's been conducted and, you know, it hasn't gone uh, and inflamed itself further. But I'm just saying before that, given yeah. what we were talking no, about. I, no, but I, I, yeah. I have a different view on this. I, I mean, I think that, 
But I'm also talking about the uncertainty over the silk mill relationship. Is that when no, but that's medium to term. He's saying, yeah. for now, don't you think that the way that India's done this means that this chapter is closed? I'm, I'm saying, I think there's a, I think there's a pause, and and like we don't know what's on the next page, because oh, I still we don't know what's going to yes. happen. Yeah, like I, yeah. one, there could be a major LOC sort of uh, flare up, right? I, I mean, I. You or know. they're biding their time for what they really or, want to do. Or, yeah. or the LET and the Jesh and, and, and whoever, and, and whatever accusations or, or insinuations Indian, you know, Indian voices might have on this in terms of their links to the establishment here. But what, what prevents, you know, uh, another, another attack right, like today or, or yeah. tomorrow, right? In fact, in fact, in the business of non-state actors, if you think about quantum of success, the amount of joy and celebration among non-state actors today that they've been able to literally dictate bilateral relations between, you know, a country of 1.2 billion and a country of 0.2 billion, uh, both with nuclear weapons. This is like the biggest win. Uh, this is a much bigger win than Mumbai. I mean, Mumbai yeah, got... But the but sure, this is where we run into the kind of more fundamentally clashing uh, premises on these things, right? Which is that the degree to which we believe these are non-state actors. I'm not saying it's a binary, but the degree to which we believe these are non-state actors just fundamentally differs. And that changes the way we ultimately assess that possibility. Because if you consider it to be, uh, if you consider these groups to be less non-state uh, or more non-state, that changes the way you look at that quantum of effort and the way in which you have to respond and deter. I guess, and, and, and that brings us to the whole question about sort of the degree to which those who think that these guys aren't non-state actors, or let's call them the 49 percenters and below, um, for those and folks... If I could also add one more avenue of thought is also the degree of agency over these non-state actors, as if everything is where, where there is direct control, but it doesn't... Well, but Shashank yeah. has already said that it's not yeah. a binary. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's the nuance there. But, yeah. I, but I think even, even, if you, even if we account for that, the, the larger question then becomes, what degree of rationality are we attributing to this actor? Let's call it the... Uh, the Indians like to call it the deep... I mean, it's, it's a technical term. Other, others use it. Pakistanis use the term as well. But if everything is being directed by the deep state, what's the end game here? What, what, was, the, what was achieved... Uh, by Uri, and how does what happened, uh, you know, in retaliation, or what purportedly happened or allegedly happened uh, in retaliation, how does that further their uh, aims? And then if they are what they are, then what are they going to do next? Well, I mean, on the, on the first of those questions, I suppose the argument is that if the cost is... A military, a military confrontation, confrontation like this, with the possibility of, of, of escalation, um, depending on how that would be viewed internationally, whether favorable to India or sympathetic to India or not, that it would, at the margin, begin to change the calculus of those who are encouraging or abetting these cross-border attacks. Now, I don't think that anyone in the Indian government thinks that it will change the Pakistani calculus to the degree that these attacks stop overnight, but at the margin, it may, it may tip the balance for some decisions such that attacks that were seen as lower cost may become less desirable and may not occur. And over time, one of these responses, rates of, the rate itself, raises the possibility of further probes the next time round with a greater cost imposed. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't think that that philosophy is correct unless it is paired with a process of diplomacy that has inducements as well as costs. Uh, and I'm, I, I, I don't view this just in an India-Pakistan concept, uh, concept, context. I look at this across the board of different states who believe they have a problem with state-sponsored terrorism and how they've dealt with it and how successful they've been. And indeed, I wrote about this. Uh, I wrote about Indians, you know, envy of Israel um, uh, a week ago for, for Mint in the Indian press and pointed out that a, you know, series of repeated cross-border strikes 
assassinations, raids, even all-out war had not fundamentally changed Israel's dilemma with respect to these militant groups, and it would not change India's conundrum with respect to these groups. And indeed, if you are going to favor this kind of strategy of imposing a cost, it only makes sense alongside diplomacy. So in that sense, I think that the Indian approach is effectively partial. So is, is the question of moving on with diplomacy on the stated objective of isolation as opposed to just further bilateral efforts? No, he said positive inducements. Okay. I, I'm not, uh, unless, you, unless you think no, no, I, isolation just, is the, uh, <laughs> uh, well, well, it is diplomacy with others. Nay, but yeah. Well, I guess. No, no, sorry. I think to, we're talking about two uh, different, different diplomatic yeah, prongs, right? Yeah. One set of diplomacy, which is the one that is completely dominant, in fact, maybe completely overwhelming at this point, is the desire to find any and every way to impose a cost on Pakistan. Yes. Now, you know, I looked at this in the Iran context. I spent a lot of time looking at, uh, and I, I'm not by any means saying the analogy is, is, is perfect, but, you know, the way the U.S. and others tried to coerce Iran into giving up its nuclear program, and they piled sanction upon sanction upon sanction. I am one of those people who believes simultaneously that the sanctions were absolutely imperative to persuading Iran to negotiate and that ultimately favoring a broad settlement of the issues on pretty good terms. But I also believe that that would never have come about had we listened to the hawks and simply relied on sticks and sticks and sticks and never presented a broad diplomatic framework in which to make concessions worthwhile for Iran. And I think India is ultimately going to run into the similar issue, which is that imposing a cost on Pakistan for deterrent purposes I don't think that's going to really work. I have seen too many other cases where if that occurs without any parallel diplomacy, it just doesn't yield anything and it gets you into a rut, even though it may satisfy domestic audiences. I think, you know, you, you, you brought up the, the Israel context yourself and I loved your piece on that. I would, I would encourage you. readers to, to dig that out and, and have a look because it is... Uh, it's it's uh, it's rife with realism at a time in India where I think a lot of security analysts and strategists um, maybe are thinking um, I don't know maybe just getting ahead of themselves in terms of where they think India really is at and 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 how far ahead of Pakistan it, it's at. Um, but but I think that question about sort of you know the isolation of Pakistan is an interesting one. Obviously, we have to contend with it in in. Uh, from from a different vantage point, sitting here in Pakistan, I certainly don't think that you know uh, Uri has resulted in any kind of isolation for Pakistan, and and you know getting Bangladesh and and Sri Lanka, uh, sorry Bangladesh and uh, India, although I think Sri Lanka today also sort of put out a statement, but that's kind of a after the fact uh, thing. Uh, it, it doesn't really represent isolation in in the way that perhaps India means. Of course, isolation is a longer term project. So, uh, you know, it wasn't going to happen overnight. I guess the larger sort of question is, if the problem is seen as a security problem and, and, a, and a geopolitical problem, I think that you're probably right. Over time, uh, both positive and negative inducements by one power or one hegemon can, can yield reasonable results in terms of the adversary over time. Uh, I think the... What, what makes me a bit more concerned is, and this is taking you back to the, to the original sort of discussion that we got into about the political part of this. When I look at sort of future leadership in India, I don't see Rahul Gandhi. I see Ram Madhav. Um, I see the increased saffronization of even sort of, you know, the, the mainstream, uh, the urban mainstream. I mean, not that it isn't right now, but, you know, I, I just don't see how India is going to get any less hawkish on Pakistan. Um, and I, I, I attribute a substantial, of course, there's actions from Pakistan that don't help, uh, actions from groups based in Pakistan that don't help, statements coming out of Pakistan that don't help, all of that notwithstanding. But I also see that that, that over time, uh, that increased hostility towards Pakistan is also informed by the long-standing identity uh, debate and dynamic in India, and it's that that one isn't going to get any better. I mean, I think that you know, right wings, right wing uh, Hindutva Vadis in India are 
going to go from strength to strength because India is going to grow at 8 to 10% a year for almost, I mean, if any country is going to grow, it's going to be India among the big countries. And so when you put all that together, I, I don't see any possibility of that right-wing India, you, you know, offering 80% approval ratings to people like Narendra Modi and in the future to people like Ram Madhav or, or others, probably somebody from Maharashtra. How is this going to play out, do you think? Uh, will, the, will the cold analytical types in Delhi be able to moderate the, the hot-blooded uh, hot RSS uh, folks that are going to run the country over the next generation? Well, you know, first, there's an interesting sociological point there, which is I, I don't like the social and cultural trends I see in large parts of India, but uh, I don't know whether they are so uh, all-encompassing that they effectively mean, you know, Ram Madhav is the next leader. I mean, I, I, I think these things do move in cycles, and I think unless we think the Congress Party is a completely moribund force that has absolutely no prospect of returning to political power, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that we will see other governments come to power in India. So that's, 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 that's part of it. I think part two is to say that, uh, look, the government that was responsible in India for mobilizing half a million men and for uh, effectively beginning the most extensive India-Pakistan standoff in the modern period uh, in 2002 was, was, was the same government that, you know, two years later was engaged in the most, uh, well, the most far-reaching process of diplomacy with Pakistan that we have seen in recent times and are likely to see for a long while. Now, I know, of course, that Modi is no Vajpayee, and we, we know that, but I still think that sometimes, in, you know, give it time and hawks can become the most creative diplomats because, of course, of their natural advantage of not being able to be outflanked. Um, and we may yet come to that point. And the third point is that I, I still think that you're looking at this as a kind of steady worsening over the recent period to some, you know, getting worse and worse and worse. I still see a more cyclical approach. And even now, I see things, things are not occurring that were routinely occurring during previous uh, India-Pakistan crises. And I'm thinking here particularly of missile tests, right? We used to have periodic flurries of missile tests every time we had a situation like this. After Mumbai, uh, in the years before that, it was a classic indication of elevated tensions. Indeed, I think Vipin Naran wrote a, uh, a very good quantitative study of missile tests that followed these kinds of, of crises. On areas like that, we haven't seen stuff like that. I think there is scope for this situation to uh, reach an equilibrium when India feels it has done enough to push back against the post-Mumbai status quo, all I can hope is at that point we have scope for diplomacy that involves something other than purely the isolation of Pakistan and that involves a broader dialogue. Um, that will involve backing down from red lines, but let's not forget, we have seen this government back down from red lines before. Uh, they did it on, on the, on the uh, issue of whether Pakistani officials can meet Hurriyat leaders, and they will do it again. And my hope is that that is the path to diplomacy that is a necessary complement to this gamut of coercive options that they're pursuing as well. Shashank, uh, I... I want to continue talking because it's it's really such a pleasure uh, to hear you speak about these matters and knowing how sometimes how severely we disagree. Uh, I because of your incredibly polite uh, charm, uh, I, I I'm not going to argue many <laughs> points with you, but also because I'm conscious of time and I know that uh, I know that you have a lot going on. I'm incredibly grateful uh, that you made the time. I, I also, frankly, wanted to end on a positive. I think it's incredibly powerful that we end this conversation with someone, uh, you know, of your insights uh, and hopefully foresight, uh, predicting that there will be, um, you know, a settling down and the opening up of avenues that seem totally closed right now. That's a great place for us to end the conversation. Fussy, why don't you close us out? So anyhow, Shashanka, I'd like to thank you. And I think uh, not only uh, do you write brilliantly, but you speak magnificently. I think I'll take Thank away you. the phrase uh, that hawks can become natural diplomats because they can't be outflanked. I'll use it somewhere. I think it is, uh, it's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you. And, uh, you know, I hope we continue to engage and things turn out, as you say, with maybe a different equilibrium, but 
with none of the Armageddon or, uh, you know, the sort of worst-case scenarios playing out. Thank, Thank you, you so much, both, both of you, for having me, and for such a stimulating and uh, really thoughtful um, uh, and, and, and uh, friendly conversation. I'm really grateful to you both. <laughs> Take care. Right. Thanks Thank for joining Bye-bye. us. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that was uh, Shashank Joshi. Thanks once again for, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, I think we'll keep talking about India uh, for, for a few weeks here. Yeah. No Brangelina. The Sean Brangelina now has to go. It's all India, Pakistan for the next. Wait, hold on a second. Yeah, (laughs) is Brangelina an option? It was. It was the thing we had to discuss. Look, when we were planning this, you said we had to do India. You never mentioned Brangelina, folks. We're going to talk about Brangelina soon. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Take care.